This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for joining the forum today called African Politics Today, What Progressives Need to Know. My name is Lee Langraff, and I'm with the International Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. I'm based in New York City. Uh, in the International Committee, we have a number of regional subcommittees as well as work on eco-socialism, labor, and many more, all in the efforts to build global solidarity. And we uh, put this event together today as a first of uh, a series of educational events on politics and activism on the African continent. And we wanted to launch this series because for a lot of uh, people on the left, on the U.S. left, there's an interest, but also some gaps in terms of understanding African politics, history, uh, and struggles as well as U.S. foreign policy there. And also in the, in the interest of reframing some common thinking uh, about African politics. So, I mean, specifically for many in the U.S., I think Africa is viewed really as a continent, um, only as a continent steeped in crisis. And it's understood simply in terms of uh, famine, poverty, civil wars, and corruption. And that the roots of these conditions are somehow kind of naturally occurring features of African nations themselves. They're somehow intrinsic to the way that African societies uh, are, are set up. Um, and for, for activists, that doesn't actually leave much room for seeing those on the continent with agency and with history. So this event today and future ones are, is really part of a contribution to a more nuanced understanding of current events, of African nations and societies, uh, really as those enmeshed historically and today within a global system and with rich traditions of resistance from anti-colonial revolutions to pro-democracy movements and struggles against neoliberal austerity and much more. So we're really glad to have such a great panel of speakers here today to flesh out this framework and for us for us and to support our project in the International Committee of Building Internationalism and Solidarity. So thank you so much for joining. And also um, a thanks as well to Haymarket Books for co-hosting this event with us. So now I'm going to turn to introducing our panelists and I'm going to go in alphabetical order. Uh, first of all, to start, Nisreen uh, El Amin, who is an assistant professor of international studies at Bryn Mawr College, and she's an anthropologist who researches land rights, extractive industries, foreign land grabs, and the militarization of borders in East Africa and the Sahel. Then we have Zachariah Mempili, who's the Marx Chair of International Affairs at the City University of New York, and he's the author of Rebel Rulers, Insurgent Governance, and Civilian Life During War, and the co-author of Africa Uprising, 
popular protest and political change. We also have Jason Stearns, who's the director of the Congo Research Group at NYU, assistant professor of international studies at Simon Fraser University, and the author of Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, The Collapse of the Congo and the Great War of Africa, and The War Doesn't Say Its Name Why Conflict Endures in the Congo. And last but not least, Joseph Waldens, who is assistant professor in the Department of African American and African Studies and affiliated faculty in political science at the University of Minnesota. He received his PhD from Indiana University in political science, and his research interests are in the areas of elite politics, authoritarian regimes, political institutions, and social network analysis with a geographical focus on Africa. So the way this form is going to run, uh, we're going to have about 45 minutes of a roundtable discussion with the four panelists. And then what we'll do is we'll open it up for questions for you all in the audience um, and uh, and we'll go and we'll go from there. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, kick it off with a question. Uh, the first question for the panelists, uh, which is uh, I'm. Love to hear from all of you. What are uh, some of the protest traditions and social movements in your countries of expertise, both historically and some of the current dynamics, as well as additional contexts that would help those of us uh, on the left in the U.S. Uh, to, uh, who might be less familiar with this background? And what I'll do is I'll kick it off first to Zachariah, who will fill in some of this and give us a little bit of a continent-wide picture as well. So, Zachariah, please take it away. Thank you, Lee, and thank you all for uh, joining us today. It's really wonderful to be here with uh, such an esteemed group of panelists. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm really excited that it's the, the first of what I hope are, are many uh, such panels that, that, that bring to U.S. left a, a more internationalist perspective, uh, especially one that, that centers uh, some of the events and, and movements that are ongoing on the continent. Uh, let me just start by saying, you know, I, we are very aware uh, that Africa is a, a vast place, uh, 55 countries, very different politics and economies, many. Uh, but we wanted to explicitly do something that talked uh, about Africa as a whole. I think there's a number of reasons for this, and I wanted to try to explore these in, in more detail. And we also want to be able to talk uh, more specifically about individual cases in the African context, knowing full well uh, that they don't necessarily represent what's happening across the continent itself. That being said, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that comes to mind when we talk about uh, African resistance movements in particular uh, is that there is the continuity that has defined African social movements over time. Um, when I was working on the book with Adam Branch, Africa Uprising, one of the things that we wanted to do as outsiders was really to try to situate the contemporary wave of African protest uh, within this longer history of African struggles. Uh, and in order to do that, we really began uh, in the beginning, uh, which was movements that emerged to resist European colonialism uh, as early as the 1920s, but really picking up speed in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, and one of the things that, that was really striking for us, uh, reading many of the figures who were involved uh, in these movements at the time, was how much they were in conversation with each other, with other scholars and activists on the continent, but also how internationalist they were in terms of constructing an African resistance. Uh, and there were many sites in which this occurred. There were obviously conferences that occurred in places like Europe and the United States, uh, but also many that were held on the African continent itself. And in these spaces, 
uh, you had really seminal debates between key figures, people like Franz Fanon, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, and others around what is the appropriate form of resistance for Africa in that given moment. And what we saw in the 1940s and 50s is that these debates shaped the nature of many different nationalist struggles that were unfolding across the continent at the time. Uh, and so that by the 1950s, it became increasingly clear uh, that many of these movements were starting to have an impact uh, on dismantling European colonial institutions. Um, so I think it's useful to, to take this continental perspective because what we see is that there is, in fact, a lot of dialogue and discourse, not only between African activists, but also between African activists uh, and internationalist actors globally. If we look back at this first wave of African protests in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, we can see that it was actually quite successful. By the early 1960s, the vast majority of African countries uh, had become independent. Uh, most of them uh, most of them emerged uh, as newly independent states, many adopting uh, somewhat leftist politics and, and, and in some cases actually overt forms of socialist rule on the African continent. Um, but they also were limited in many ways. And one of the things that I think is very interesting, if you take the chronological perspective on what's been happening in Africa across, say, the past 70, 80 years, um, is the ways in which protest itself has evolved over time. So if we look back at the 1940s and 50s, uh, many of these were personality-centric movements uh, that really centered the role of the political party. And so what you see across Africa in the 1960s and 1970s are a variety of one-party states often led by very uh, dynamic, but also fairly autocratic individual political leaders. Uh, if we look at the sort of second major wave of African protests that follows uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, we see how they are responding to this earlier wave. So the earlier wave uh, can really be understood as, as successful in the sense that it did dismantle European rule, but it did not lead to the type of economic and political liberation that many of the activists who were participating in these struggles were actually advocating for. Instead, it was uh, uh, that period in African history was characterized by one-party states, uh, many of whom were fairly autocratic in terms of how they dealt with the civilian population and largely worked to suppress opposition movements across the continent. In the 80s and 90s, you see a new wave of African protests. Many of these uh, protests are emerging uh, in response to very brutal structural adjustment programs. Uh, the 80s and 90s in Africa were a period uh, of austerity, uh, largely pushed by the international financial institutions. But what's really interesting about these protests that really start to kick off in the 1980s uh, in Sudan which we'll hear more about today, uh, is that they also started to uh, argue against and to, to resist very openly uh, the one-party state in Africa. And so you see the emergence of a democratization discourse. Uh, you see that even as these movements uh, are able to overthrow longstanding leaders in many parts of the continent, uh, they are also able to sort of uh, call for new forms of political rule across their countries. Uh, and we start to see the emergence of a form of democratization taking place in Africa by the 1990s. So prior to the 1990s, only about three African countries were even remotely democratic in any sense. Uh, and then you see this rapid period of democratization in the 1990s really continuing into the 2000s. Uh, this was largely a success story, but uh, once again, the, the ordinary people who 
constituted the bulk of the protesters who were most directly involved in these social movements that led to this period of democratization were again pushed aside by political elites and political parties. So rather than uh, a genuine uh, economic and political transformation of the sort that was being called for by the protesters, what you see in the 1990s is really a narrow form of electoral party competition becoming the de facto form of government across the African continent. Uh, while this is certainly progress from the one-party states that, that predated uh, this period, what we find very quickly is that you know the, some of the same political elites who had participated in these one-party states simply switched sides to form new political parties and were able to capture power uh, as a result of these newly held elections. Uh, or incumbent regimes that had been in power really through the independent, really from the beginning of the independence period, uh, simply started to hold elections because that seemed to satisfy the international demand for democratization, even as they failed to make any sort of substantive political and economic changes in the African context. And so you see very quickly, even somewhat left-wing parties like the African National Congress in South Africa, uh, rather than bringing about the sort of massive economic transformation that many South Africans were calling for in the 1990s, largely adopts a neoliberal frame uh, throughout the 1990s and 2000 period uh, uh, explicitly. That brings us to today. So what is it, the last thing I want to say before I pass it on to the panelists, uh, you know, again, this question of is this specific to uh, particular countries uh, or is this a, a continental wide trend? You know, what we have been researching uh, really for the past five, six years now uh, is how uh, broad the current wave of African protest has been. Uh, again, we can trace it back to somewhere maybe around the mid 2000s when there were massive protests uh, in places like Ethiopia, another country we hope we can talk more about today, uh, but really picking up steam in the early 2010s, uh, where you see the, the frequency of these sort of mass popular movements emerging all over the continent. Of course, uh, 2011 represents a high point where you have the so-called Arab Spring. One thing that is often forgotten is that the Arab Spring is primarily taking place in the African context, and that the North African countries that were at the center of the Arab Spring uh, were just uh, a small sliver uh, of the number of countries that had mass popular movements during this period. And if we follow the next 10 years uh, until today, what we have seen is that this protest wave has not really diminished. Rather, uh, we have seen large popular movements in over 40 African countries out of 55 uh, since 2010, uh, that these protests continue into the present day. And that unlike earlier, uh, the earlier two waves that I've just described, uh, that these movements seem to be much more cynical about the role of political parties. And so uh, I think one of the, the key debates that we want to discuss today uh, is, you know, again, what is the relationship between social movements uh, and electoral politics? Uh, and the second point, and this is my last one, uh, who actually constitutes these popular movements? Are they led as earlier movements were by political elites working closely with political parties, uh, or are they bringing in uh, more and more ordinary people, people from uh, the peripheral areas of urban spaces, people from the rural areas who have historically, historically been left out of African social movements? Uh, these are the kinds of things that I think we really need to look more closely uh, at individual cases to, to, to discern uh, the similarities, but also the many differences that exist at the national level. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Zachariah. And so on that note, just to open it up to the other panels who would like to kind of jump in and, and make some comments. 
Um, maybe I'll um, start by talking briefly about um, the revolution that continues in Sudan. It's uh, entered a new phase, um, but I, I, I think it's still ongoing. Um, and so I want to actually make a larger point about international solidarity um, in talking about the Sudanese revolution. Um, it's where I'm originally from. And I guess um, I'll start by saying that I, um, before becoming an academic, I worked in international development, uh, community organizing, and worked for I worked for an organization called Grassroots International that partners with social movements um, in countries where the U.S. has had a particularly negative uh, policy impact, like Mexico, Haiti, Palestine, South Africa. And we would basically fund groups like the Treatment Action Center in South Africa that were fighting for... Um, access to um, antiretroviral uh, medications that were um, generic. And to me at the time, uh, this was like international solidarity work at its best. But the Sudanese revolution really changed that for me. Um, so just to kind of give you a little bit of context, in, in December of 2018, um, the revolution uh, gained momentum in Sudan and mass support because of a convergence of kind of decade-old grievances against state violence and marginalization in peripheral areas uh, with rural demands for land reform and urban calls for justice and economic security. And people were basically united in this desire um, to not only overthrow a 30-year brutal military dictatorship um, under al-Bashir, but to really completely reimagine the economic, political, and social future of the country. This is not our first revolution. We had one in 64, one in 85, and so we kind of followed that tradition. But it was really a kind of opening moment in many ways. And as the revolution spread to 23 towns and cities across Sudan, it became clear that it was led by very grassroots formations, working class unions, feminist and youth groups, neighborhood resistance community committees, and generally disgruntled, disgruntled folks who were struggling to survive. What was clear was that the traditional opposition parties um, and even one of the white collar unions that emerged as a quasi leader and representative of the revolution in the current transitional government were neither leading or really prepared for what was unfolding as they kind of scrambled to co-opt the very radical political organizing um, that continues to drive the revolution. And so I want to speak briefly about one of these formations. There are these neighborhood committees that formed in towns across Sudan. Um, they're kind of these informal uh, neighborhood-wide networks of people. They emerged in the 2010s to coordinate civil disobedience actions against cuts in fuel and food subsidies that were recommended by the IMF, land seizures and raids carried out by the secret police of the former regime. My 83-year-old um, father, who built barricades against police invasions during the revolution alongside youth from these committees, considers them the kind of backbone of the, of the revolution in the urban areas. In places like Arrahad, which is in the western part of Sudan, um, neighborhood committees broke down government zakat stores where wheat and other basic food items were stored and redistributed them in their communities. So as a member of the diaspora, I wanted to figure out how we could support these committees financially through advocacy, et cetera. And I was struggling to figure out how do you do international solidarity work with this, within this context? And I was constantly met with this very gentle and kind reminder that groups carrying the revolution did not want money, much less money originating from the U.S., and that people reminded me that intervention and engagement, particularly from the U.S., whether through grants um, you know, from U.S. foundations or NGOs 
or government agencies, or even through the diaspora, often have a kind of de-radicalizing effect and sort of hinder the work of these, these radical grassroots groups. And it took me really a while to internalize this point um, that international solidarity actually means not overstating our role as diaspora in the events that are unfolding back home. I think it means holding back from speaking on behalf of resisting the urge to throw money on something, right? That, that uh, people's desire for less rather than more US intervention or engagement, even if it's a positive kind of engagement needs to be respected. And I think this can apply to anywhere really on the continent. Um, so for example, and I just wanna give this as a final point here. I remember a couple of years ago, um, a group called Girifna, which is a youth activist group from Sudan. Uh, Girifna means we are fed up um, and they've been very involved in the revolution. We had a meeting with members of the diaspora in Boston. Um, I was affi I'm affiliated with the group. And there was someone from a foundation affiliated with the CEO of eBay present um, who was insisting on funding Girifna. And I'll never forget how skillfully and politely one of the Girifna activists told the person that they were and would never be interested in their support because they're anti-capitalist and because they stand in solidarity with workers in the US who are fighting corporate exploitation and monopolies. And so to be clear, it doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities for some engagement guided by people on the ground. The Movement for Black Lives, um, after reaching out to youth groups and activists in Sudan, issued an important solidarity statement in the wake of a brutal massacre that occurred in July of 2019 carried out by security forces that broke up the sit-in uh, that had gathered hundreds and thousands of people in front of the military headquarters in Sudan for several months, demanding a full transition to civilian rule. And this was part of a larger effort by groups on the ground to strategically draw international attention to the massacre and to what was happening. Similarly, a group of people of color anarchists in Chicago sent encrypted phones and laptops to youth activists during an internet blackout after we ask them what would be most useful. But the basic point I wanna leave you with is that the role we play in solidarity with folks around the world, and in particular in relation to popular movements and uprisings on the continent is perhaps more restrained and limited than we sometimes imagine or desire it to be. Thank you. Yeah, I can jump in here. You guys can hear me okay? I think there's been some feedback. Cool. Uh, it's uh, great to participate in this. Thanks a lot for uh, for the invite. This is a great a great forum. Hopefully, the first of many. I'm going to talk a little bit about the area that I'm focused on, which is Central Africa and mostly the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to understand a little bit how social movements there have participated, and to draw a lot on what both uh, Zachariah and Nisreen have been talking about. I think there's a nice convergence of a lot of dynamics. And so uh, the DRC, much like Sudan, much like many other places in Africa, has seen waves of social movements since independence in 1960 and a real uptick in mobilization uh, in 2015 um, by social movements that, as Zachariah pointed out, are were largely independent of political parties at the time, largely youth movements based in urban areas and uh, mostly focused on political change at the top of the country. This was a time when the then president, Joseph Kabila, was trying to hang on to power. He was trying to, as many African presidents have done, change their constitution so they remain in power, in his case, for a third term. And these youth movements, I guess the most important ones were Lucha and Filimbi, but especially Lucha, um, then embarked in a series of very courageous demonstrations 
and started a, a broad coalition with political parties, civil society organizations, and the Catholic Church that did receive backing from foreign donors, including the United States. This mobilized enormous numbers of people between 2015 and 2018. It blocked uh, the change of constitution. And then it made it impossible for Joseph Kabila then to impose his own handpicked successor. And so uh, at elections in 2018, his party and coalition was forced to at least partially step down from power, although the elections were deeply flawed. So there was an enormous number of successes. But I think it also points at a bunch of sort of cross-cutting dynamics that are important to highlight that also hold for other countries in Africa. Um, so social movements in the Congo have been successful where they've been coupled with, with political parties and civil society. You can see this in Burkina Faso, for example, um, where they threw out uh, the government of Blaise Compaoré. You can see this in Senegal, where again, a broad-based coalition of political opposition, uh, youth, youth movements led by Yonamar, uh, blocked um, uh, Abdoulaye Wad from remaining in power there. You can even see it in the historic elections in Kenya that ended the Moise dictatorship in 2002. And you can see it in the fall of apartheid in South Africa in 1991. In each of these cases, you have a coming together of both social movements as well as political parties, opposition movements, um, and civil society. The focus of many of these mobilizations in the case of the Congo, Senegal, Burkina Faso has been, and I guess Sudan, I would say it would be interesting to talk, Ms. Rina, but I see it as an, ex an exception to this a little bit. Um, but the focus of many of these movements have been on elections and on overthrowing the people in power. Now, the problem with this is that once the government is removed, as happened in many of these cases, so there's been enormous successes, once the government is then removed, that coalition almost always falls apart. Um, some of those in that coalition join the government. Uh, in the case of the Congo, you can see, for example, <clears throat> many of the leading civil society figures either join or express or be co-opted in some shape or form by the government. And also, I think what this tends to do is something that we're seeing in the United States a little bit. It tends to conf conflate the broader problems, structural problems of society with the individual in power. And so there's this notion that the problem in the Congo is Joseph Kabila. Once he is removed from power, then that's enough. The problem in Burkina Faso is Blaise Compaoré, and the problem in Senegal was Abdoulaye Wade. The problem in the United States is Donald Trump, right? Um, and the problem with this is that this hasn't, even though they've been successful in, in very courageous, often at the cost of enormous bloodshed, in kicking out many of these abusive governments, this has not yet led to the broad-based structural change that many African countries require. So Africa is still, broadly speaking, a place of extraction. Uh, you know, in a couple of years, Africa will host a third of humanity. Uh, and yet, by 2050, and yet Africa can, constitutes around 3% of world GDP. Um, half of Africa's exports are raw materials. Um, and these movements that Zachariah was pointing out, so the, the democracy movement that really succeeded in ushering in, you know, democratic elections, which is sort of the name of the game in, in most of Africa now, did not succeed, uh, well, also liberalized the economy. And so you had a rush of both democratization as well as neoliberalism in Africa. So the economies have been privatized. You've had a ghettoization of urban areas, uh, erosion of public goods go hand in hand. I think one of them, and I'll just finish with this, one of the epitomes of this is something that's happening as we speak right now. Elections were held yesterday 
in Uganda, uh, where the president of power, Yoweri Museveni, is trying to stay in power after 34 years in power. Um, and he's being faced by a political opposition member who I think has a lot in common with these youth movements, these social movements across the continent. He's a foreign musician. He's extremely popular. He himself comes from uh, the urban poor, uh, Bobby Wine, uh, Robert Kerugani. And he has been extremely courageous, you know, facing death threats, uh, facing uh, enormous brutality, being beaten down. And yet he says he has no problem with the policies of the current president. His problem is that the president himself has wanted to stay in power. And so I think this is one of the struggles we see with this current generation of social movements across Africa. They're enormously courageous. And yet when they try, such as in the case of Yonamar and Lucha in, in Senegal and the Congo, when they try to articulate a, a, a critique of the economy, of the political economy, they're much less successful at doing that than criticizing the people in power and bringing about political change at the top. And so I'll stop there. Um, I guess I'll, I'll chime in uh, for a little bit here as well, um, focusing more so on, on Ethiopian Eritrea here in this case, um, in terms of the, the role of social movements in essentially laying the groundwork for what we're seeing today happening um, in Eritrea and Ethiopia. In fact, social movements, folks were at that time uh, sort of the radical Marxist students uh, attending universities, where the to the forefront of critiquing what was then Haile, Haile Selassie's government, the sort of imperial government that functioned in a particular kind of way. And uh, these younger folks really uh, leveraging Marxist theory as a way of critiquing and sort of framing the status quo as essentially feudalism. Um, but that social movement from protests quickly um, transformed into actual armed rebellions. And uh, you had rebel groups popping up all across uh, was then Eritrea and Ethiopia sort of one empire, so uh, Ethiopia. And, and um, what's interesting about protest movements, from my perspective, is essentially um, it's, it's, a, it's this transformation or this translation from grievances to then articulate some, sort of, some understanding as to like, who's culpable, what's the problem, and what's the solution, so to speak. And there's this sort of there's this act of imagination that's happening here, and um, in, in the case of Eritrea and Ethiopia, this is happening with actual guns. People are literally going to war, essentially proposing different kinds of ideas. And at the end, the ones that won won out was in Eritrea the EPLF, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, and in Ethiopia. It was the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Now, this is just two among many organizations at the time were, um, were all across the country. And it's current, the, the ethnic federalism that you're seeing in Ethiopia was instituted by the Tigray People's Liberation Front. They had that ideology to start out with, seeing their grievances early on during Haile Selassie's regime as essentially the problem here is that one ethnicity is dominating another ethnicity. Interestingly, uh, it's um, at times foe and at times allies, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front to the north, uh, saw the issue more in terms of Eritrea having been a former colony, and just like all the other colonies across Africa, should have had uh, been granted its independence instead of being uh, merged with Ethiopia. Right. And so articulated a different kind of uh, vision forward. Um, 
And, and in fact, the, the very people that we see actually in conflict today, I mean, the TPLF, for those who don't know, it's the, it's the Tigray region, the northern parts of, of Ethiopia, where currently we're seeing, uh, essentially it's a, it's, a, it's a war that has been unfolding there, humanitarian strategy, and it's risking even to engulf now. Uh, Sudan is at the border, uh, now also getting involved, and the issues quickly get more complex, and I know we're going to deal with this more in the second question. Um, but the point being is that um, the, the imagination that under which or that, that the TPLF worked with or created uh, became the framework uh, in the 90s when they took over that then defined the political landscape as ethnic federalism. Now, there's some uh, proponents and there's some uh, critics of this, but uh, it does raise the question of how social movements speak back to this. And in some ways, I think, uh, Jason, what you just, well, I think all, all the panelists have, have mentioned here, um, maybe regime change isn't so much the end goal, but more so that you, when you have sustained protest, um, really drawing attention and sort of in a sustained way, um, pointing out deeper problems. So for instance, in Ethiopia with the, the Oromo protest, that was really pointing out the, the kinds of oppression that the government was, was perpetrating. Uh, but it was even deeper than that, that the imagination of what is Ethiopia needed to be uh, you know, essentially reimagined. Right? And so perhaps in that sense, um, social movements may be at its best, not necessarily when over, over uh, turning a government or overthrowing a government, but more so by bringing at the, or to the mainstream a certain kind of discourse that eventually elites can no longer hide uh, from it. So I'll just leave it at that. Thanks so much, Joseph and everybody. Those were uh, really great contributions. And uh, just to, to move it along, I'm going to uh, just pivot to the next question really quick, and then we'll open it up for discussion, uh, which is that I was wondering if all of you could speak a bit to um, more of the kind of geopolitics and foreign policy and the role of so-called external actors in Africa, both sort of more of the established powers like the U.S. and China, as well as some of the, you know, kind of newer players, so to speak, on the continent. And, and just, you know, overall, what is Africa's uh, place, place in the world right now? So perhaps we could uh, start with Nisreen and kind of go around the table again. Um. Okay, sure. Um, I guess I, I, I can start a little bit by talking about investment because I um, that's kind of my area of expertise uh, and then kind of pivot. I think actually Sudan is a good example of, um, of the way that the U.S. Uh, engages um, with African countries. Um, if we look at sort of U.S. policy, uh, over the over the last few years, so so actually, yeah, maybe maybe I'll just start with that, um, and and people can sort of interject um, as as you will if there are connections. But I want to kind of start off with the Muslim ban and the way that the Trump administration, um, you know, at the time included. Um, it should really be called the African ban because with its various iterations, is always you know, new African countries get added. But um, 
Sudan was added to this travel ban list and it was a bit of an odd kind of addition. And um, I was detained under the ban and I remember the, the people who interrogated me couldn't actually explain to me why Sudan had been uh, put on the list, which goes to show uh, in some ways how uninformed a lot of our policies are towards the continent. Um, but in any case, um, Sudan was um, later dropped from the travel ban list uh, in return for um, sending more troops to fight the war in Yemen on Saudi Arabia and the Emirates' behalf. Um, and so basically the, the, the travel ban was used to kind of extort political favors. Uh, you, the UAE and Saudi Arabia lobbied on Sudan's behalf in Washington. Um, in addition to that, uh, Chad was then added. Um, um, and that was also a curious addition and it had apparently to do with uh, the fact that they hadn't digitized their passports. But really what was happening in my mind, and this is sort of more speculation, is that the Secretary of State under um, Trump at the time, Rex Tillerson, was a former CEO of ExxonMobil um, and was embroiled in a three-year dispute with the Chadian government over um, several billion dollar um, uh, tax fine that they had not paid. And so Chad was briefly added, um, then ExxonMobil, um, you know, because Rex Tillerson was the former CEO, um, uh, uh, settled that uh, disagreement and then it was removed from the ban list. Um, so I bring these up as examples of the way that, um, you know, policies are being used to kind of extort these um, political favors, et cetera. Um, I think another example that I wanna bring is uh, during the revolution, um, the US embassy put a Facebook post up. This was in February at the height of the revolution, but also at the height of the counter revolution. And this, this kind of speaks to Jason's point earlier. I think what really is happening in Sudan is that people do have a very strong critique, a political economy critique, but that often what happens when transitional governments are formed is that the more radical um, elements of the revolution that are pushing uh, beyond regime change get kind of uh, marginalized and, and um, sometimes institutionalized, if you will, right? So for example, um, you have these neighborhood resistance committees, the NED, which is a National Endowment for Democracy, right? A congressionally funded um, group um, has been um, funding groups to then channel funding into these neighborhood resistance committees. And I think to me, this is an indication of the way that they're trying to kind of rein in the radical elements of the revolution as the U.S. is preparing uh, to kind of uh, ramp up its investments in Sudan. Um, so during the revolution, there was a Facebook post of a senior uh, official under Obama uh, who, who, had, who had continued to, to serve under Trump meeting with um, Bashir uh, officials to discuss investment opportunities in energy, mining, and infrastructure. Um, a few months later, Al-Bashir is ousted and jailed. Uh, and U.S. officials are kind of hailing the democracy, you know, uh, congratulating Sudanese people for letting democracy prevail. Um, and so, again, I want to just kind of point out this hypocrisy here, but also to, to give you another example. Uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation is a U.S. foreign aid agency established by Congress under Bush. Uh, Mike Pompeo and Steve Mnuchin sit on its board. 
And Niger is among its largest recipients of funds, mostly for agriculture and women's empowerment projects. And you might ask why Niger? Well, during the Obama administration, Niger was chosen as the site of a massive new U.S. drone facility to act as a kind of strategic foothold in West Africa and its anti-terrorism work in partnership with France. Niger also provides uh, France with most of its kind of nuclear energy through uranium. So it's a kind of key place. And again, you see a kind of granting agency, right, that's supposed to be doing development, using its funds to um, essentially open up uh, countries um, to serve their political, in this case, military interests, right? And then finally, as a, a last example, I want to uh, talk about um, recently in October of 2020, Sudan had plunged deeper into economic crisis and the transitional government uh, under Hamdok is now trying to gain access to emergency funds for COVID, to fight COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, yes, um, and so basically um, they're trying to get funds from the IMF and to seek forgiveness for its $64 billion national debt. Um, and so the Trump administration essentially bullies Sudan into normalizing relations with Israel and into paying a $335 million uh, fine to compensate families of US citizens killed in an Al-Qaeda bombing um, US American embassies in East Africa. Um, and so again, I use this as an example to, to, to show the way that um, I think for, for the last couple of decades, our, our policy towards African countries has been shaped by hypocrisy and arrogance. And that hasn't really changed from, from one sort of um, democratic uh, or, you know, Republican ad administrations. And I think we'll have much more competent and knowledgeable people um, in the Biden administration. But I don't think that this will change um, a lot. Um, and I don't think that, I think the tone will change, but I don't think that the dynamics that I've been describing will change. I think there'll be a continued effort to um, open up African markets. Um, there'll be, I think, an effort to uh, exploit African labor resources um, and to kind of position US allies like Saudi Arabia, India, um, and the Emirates um, um, in an effort to kind of um, weaken China's influence um, on the continent. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Nisreen. I'm going to throw it open to uh, the other three panelists and just to say that we were running a little bit um, short on time and we're getting a, a bunch of really awesome questions in. So maybe I'll ask the remaining three if you want to keep comments a tiny bit shorter and then we can dig into the questions from the audience. So go ahead, anyone uh, who might want to jump in here. Um, I guess I'll say a quick, quick word. Um, I guess, I mean, I don't know how well versed our audience is, but when it does come to external actors, um, I think in many respects, think of it in the same way that we speak about uh, sort of Russian influence on the elections in 2016, but amplified and manifold over than that, uh, where other than manipulating um, that you have, for instance, money flowing directly to actors whose sole purpose is to undermine uh, whatever you know the, the external actors deems to be um, problematic or don't like it. Um, and, and 
I guess if you want to get, rather than sort of me my, getting mired down on like the intricacies of the different actors right now, I would actually uh, recommend that you watch, it's a documentary called um, Cuba and African Odyssey, the two-part uh, documentary. And I'm not sure if I've ever seen another documentary that captures the dynamic once you have external actors coming in and how they can actually fuel conflict that is already happening. Um, so if you want to, to get a better grasp of that, I would highly recommend that you watch that documentary. Yeah, I'll just jump in real quick um, to sort of reinforce some of the points I think that Nisreen was making. I think that, I don't think the U.S. has a coherent policy towards Africa. I think it's, a, it's an incoherent policy with uh, contradictory imperatives. So I think in areas where the U.S. feels that its own natural, national interests are at stake, and then you have to ask how it defines its national interests, then I think that they get involved, um, they get very involved. I think in particular, this is in, in two areas. This is uh, with regards to um, uh, terrorism operations, and there it's the Department of Defense in particular. This, this pertains particularly to the Sahel, Sudan, the Horn of Africa uh, in particular. And so there, uh, U.S. Mil- uh, policy is very militarized. Um, and the other dimension, I think, is the freeing up of markets, as Ms. Reen commented. And I think where um, the default, where it's eight, where it's then with those two uh, overriding imperatives are not a concern, then democracy and human rights promotion uh, do come to the fore. But I think that um, they're very often overridden by these other concerns. And so it, it's not uh, it's not the overriding concern of the U.S. government, which then brings up all kinds of contradictions where the U.S. supports uh, dictators, authoritarian regimes. Uh, across the board when it's in its interest, it supports governments that are oil producers, such as Equatorial Guinea, and looks the other way when it comes to democracy and human rights uh, promotion. I, I think the other point that uh, that I would say is that um, we often have this perception that, the, that, that Africa is a country on the take in the sense that is the recipient of all this aid, that they're the victims of starvation and conflict. And I think if you actually take an economic analysis of the country, there have been many studies that have shown the capital flight from the country. So this is these are illicit flows of funds, uh, either uh, funding sent out by domestic elites through corruption or, in many cases, uh, multinational corporations that then extract funds from African countries and bank it abroad. Uh, and there have been many studies that shown that the, that capital flight is actually 10 times the amount of global aid going to Africa. Uh, or twice the amount of debt that developing countries in Africa repay every year. And so I think it's important, again, to come back to the fact that the, I think the biggest terrain of, of, um, of political struggle on the African continent is the economic terrain. And, and here, the African continent really has not been able to emerge from this role of extraction that it finds itself in, where it is providing these vast amounts of raw natural resources to the rest of the world's economy. Uh, and um, and uh, the U.S. is playing a role in facilitating this, both by hosting these companies, but also by taking by not cracking down uh, on a lot of these illicit flows. 
Yeah, let me let me just jump in real quickly here. I, I think um, I would definitely reiterate what the panelists have already shared. Uh, we all know that Africa has long figured into global capitalism primarily as a, a site of extraction. Uh, this dynamic is continuing. Certainly, I don't suspect that we'll see some major shifts in terms of how the U.S. government approaches the African continent. Um, you know, that being said, you know, I, there will be some changes. I, I do suspect, for example, that the global gag rule will be revoked under the Biden administration, uh, and that's certainly something that we should be happy about. Uh, but fundamentally, when we talk about sort of Africa's economic position uh, in the global economy, I don't think there's going to be much of a shift. Uh, I do want to just highlight, you know, one thing that I think, especially in the context of, of the American left, um, is that we're not tuned sufficiently to the new actors who are continuing or are, 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 are continuing to play a massive role, both in the economics and politics of many different African countries. Um, you know, obviously, the 800-pound the, the, the gorilla in the room is China. Uh, China has already become a, a larger trading partner with the African continent than the EU or the United States, which historically have been the dominant trading partners with African countries. Um, it, there are a lot of variations in terms of how the Chinese approach uh, their economic policies towards Africa. Uh, we see uh, far less of an emphasis on, on military presence compared to, say, the West. Uh, but we should not uh, downplay the, the, the extensive involvement of the Chinese government in the internal politics of many African countries, including Ethiopia, Sudan, and Congo, uh, which I'm sure we can hear more about from the other panelists. Uh, and I think the last thing I would just say is that, you know, it's not just China, right? It's not just um, uh, Europe. It's not just North America. It's also countries like India. Uh, it's certainly the Gulf states, as Nisreen mentioned, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, um, Malaysia, Turkey, <laughs> Iran. So many new players are, are, are getting involved in the internal politics of African countries, primarily for economic reasons, but also for other political concerns uh, that we on the left really need to have an analysis that goes beyond some of the, the more uh, common categories that we revert to. Right. So the language of Western imperialism, uh, while still very germane and relevant, I don't think is adequate for fully capturing uh, the shifting position of Africa in both the global economy as well as politically. And so I think we need to really start paying more attention uh, to how some of these new actors are, are, are impacting uh, internal politics in, in many different African countries. Awesome. Thanks so much, Zachariah. And uh the others and the rest of uh, the panelists. Uh, that was great. So I'm going to shift now into questions from the audience. And in the interest of time, because we have a hard stop in about 40 minutes, I'm going to kind of fold some of these questions together. So we've had a few questions uh, from folks who are interested in hearing more about the role of imperialism and neocolonialism on the continent today. And also, uh, efforts to address some of the legacies of colonialism, such as the uh, uh, partitioning and borders set up by European colonialism. And related to that, what um, what are some challenges that may um, be that are happening either here or on the African continent against U.S. militarization, specifically resistance to AFRICOM? And um, and I would add in there French militarization and and so on. So imperialism, neocolonialism, and uh, historical legacies. Anyone who'd like to jump in to start? 
I guess I can just add to what I was just talking about, which is that I think that we need to develop some some new frameworks for how we think about what's happening in the African context. Um, and, and what I want to sort of highlight there, especially when we talk about, for example, the U.S. presence, uh, is that even U.S. policy towards the continent is shifting. Uh, so, for example, you know, one of the one of the questions has to do with uh, resistance to U.S. imperialism in Africa. Uh, and I think one of the things that we have to pay attention to is that, you know, even as the U.S. government has has, has attempted uh, to securitize its engagement with many different African countries, uh, its presence is actually far less obvious uh, than it was even, say, in the in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Uh, much of the uh, U.S. footprint in Africa is clandestine. Uh, you know, you hear these numbers of, of the of bases that exist in, in Africa. The vast majority are are, are secret bases. Uh, they operate with the uh, with the consent of, of various African political leaders, uh, many of which for whom it is not beneficial to to openly uh, tout their ties to the U.S. government. Uh, so we don't even know really uh, the extent of the uh, military presence on the continent. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that, you, for example, you mentioned Africa. Um, you know, Africa doesn't even isn't even based on the continent. It's actually based in, in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, and that reflects kind of the the, the shifting nature uh, of military imperialism on the African continent today. Much more of it is happening uh, through through surveillance technologies, through drone technologies, uh, through through sites that remain largely outside of the of, of, of the, of the uh, out of sight um, uh, from from ordinary people in, in particular. And so it makes it much more difficult to to construct a, a coherent resistance because. I think, by and large, it is designed uh, to avoid uh, kind of the obvious markers of, of earliest, earlier forms of, of, of colonial domination that impacted the African continent. Yeah, if I can just jump in on that, because I totally agree with Zach. I think that um, we need, we need, and this sort of chimes with what Joseph was saying, sometimes the best work a social movement can do is not actually changing the people in power, but changing the structures of power in our minds, right? opening up new possibilities of cognitive liberation. And I think this pertains to what Zach was just saying in terms of we need to have formulate new new logics of resistance, but also new different kinds of political utopias toward, towards which we should be heading. And so, in other words, let's give an, give an example. In, in the Democratic Republic of Congo is the largest producer of cobalt, which we use in you know uh, batteries uh, in the world, and it's the largest producer of copper in all of Africa. But if you look at the companies extracting that, um, I think I think eight of the top 10 companies are Chinese. The largest company doing this is Glencore, which is a Swiss company based in Switzerland, listed on the London and New York stock exchanges. And the copper is exported from the Congo largely to refineries in Malaysia, Indonesia and China. Most of the production is happening in China. This is a this is a globalized system. Capital is completely globalized. And so if you want to articulate, you know, resistance to this, part of that's happening in the U.S. Part, part of that oversight is possible in the U.S. There have been successful pressure by the Securities and Exchange Commission, by aggressive prosecutors in various courts in the United States against corruption. But in large part, it's very difficult to do that, especially because of the nature of the international financial system. And so I think that, you know, there needs to be a, a smart action, as there is many smart action happening from the left. Uh, with regards to uh, changing the world, the, the international financial system to get rid of 
a lot of the secrecy, lack of transparency to allow for, um, you know, allow for Africans, Congolese to press these issues the way that they want to press them, you know, doing things like retaining more wealth at home, uh, pre- preventing transfer pricing away from the Congo, uh, creating more refinery, adding more value in country and things like this. And so I think that there's a very sophisticated uh, critique in terms of political economy that is emerging, that's developing. And I think that it's probably incumbent on, for us on the left in the United States to try to, to, to join in with that. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Uh, if, what, does anyone else want to uh, chime in or I can move to the next question? I mean, I guess I can make a very brief point about um, this kind of, uh, I feel like there's a dominant kind of Africa rising narrative um, that is emerging that too many people have bought into. It's a very sort of neoliberal narrative uh, that that pushes, you know, investment instead of development, uh, investment instead of aid. And yet um, the, the investment dimension of it doesn't get questioned enough in terms of what does that actually look like? Does it benefit? Um, will it uh, exacerbate already existing equal- inequalities in African countries? Um, and so as an example of that, I would say, you know, there are more and more um, there are more and more actors that, that Zach mentioned that are interested in agricultural investment in, in, in Africa. And there's this kind of uh, vision of a green revolution um, that is all about sort of mechanized farming um, and kind of uh, importing uh, the technology from the West uh, to to kind of spur some type of agricultural revolution. And and we've seen that in Sudan with uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates now owning uh, more Sudanese land, about five million acres, than all of Sudan's large domestic uh, agribusiness investors combined. Um, and much of that land has been taken away from farmers um, in a country where the majority of people um, are still relying on agriculture to make a living. So I say this as, um, you know, I think we need to also critique um, what does investment look like? On what uh, terms is it operating? Are we pushing uh, a neoliberal agenda that will ultimately get us back to the point in the 80s where people were um, also kind of, um, uh, you know, rising up against the impact of structural adjustment programs. So I think there's a little bit of a kind of repetition of that coming in, you know, through the guise of investment, right, um, that I think we need to be careful of. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would add to our conversation here is, I think in part, um, since we're, we're talking about social movements, um, so much of what actually bears fruit at the end is predicated on very boring, mundane, organizing infrastructure. And that stuff just, it takes time. It just does. And it's boring in the sense that it's not flashy. No one, no one, for instance, knows about right, the, the, the organizers behind big social movements that we see that actually put in the work that, you know, make sure that everyone is involved and so on and so forth, like the hard work. And I think in part to me is, there is much progress that we do not see in terms of infrastructure construction um, that is not visible to us. But so in terms of going forward, um, what I would like to see and what I think we can do much more in terms of what the uh, president just pointed out about, um, you know, on the one hand, you need investment. 
Let's be clear about that. Right? Whether you like it or not, I don't care how radical you are, I don't care how idealistic you are, if you do not have the funds in some way, shape, or form, good luck trying to realize your ideas. But that doesn't mean, however, that now you sort of close your eyes and uh, so long as money's coming in, you just pretend like it's good. So there needs to be that critique, there needs to be that infrastructure that can actually highlight these kinds of problems that New Zealand is pointing out about uh, land distribution and such. And I'm thinking here uh, of a journalist, an Ethiopian journalist by the name of uh, Zakaria Zelalem, who just published an article uh, that um, he essentially exposed a company that um, had a bunch of fake profile pictures and managed to get a huge contract from the Ethiopian government to do oil exploration in Ogaden, the Somali region of Ethiopia. Now, him and his skills doing some investigative uh, journalism was able to dispel and quickly show just how shallow and, and how much of a dupe that whole thing was. And by the way, in that process, he also involved the current uh, ambassador, Ethiopian ambassador to the U.S., and also exposed just how shallow the investigation was within the government. And so to me, work like that, investigative journalists like that, uh, people who can essentially hold uh, this investment accountable, that's the kind of infrastructure that I think is most fruitful. Um, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's how I see. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, all of you, so much. Um, I have two more questions that I want to try to squeeze in. And the first one, um, folks have already started to address this uh, around the question of land grabs and Jason's comments on uh, cobalt and copper and so on. But there's been a couple of questions that have come through, both about uh, the role of natural resources. And uh, there's a question specifically, what would you advise African activists or movements in resistance uh, to practically uh, handle the foreign corporations from selling natural resources to neoliberalism. And I, we've touched on this a little, but if anyone would like to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, let me just, I work in part for New York University. New York University's budget is larger, considerably larger than the budget of the entire Democratic Republic of the Congo, right? The Democratic Republic of Congo has a population estimated of 90 million, right? The entire budget of the DRC is roughly speaking $5 billion, give or take. So it's nothing, right? It's nothing. And this is despite the fact that they produce enormous amounts of wealth done without creating too many jobs in the local economy, right? It's a highly mechanized uh, kind of industry. And so it's just to emphasize the, the question, how important this question is. Now, there have been many experiments on the African continent of these supply chains, understand how we become accountable or complicit in these, in these supply chains. But I think the overriding imperative is always to stand in solidarity with whoever is, you know, with the, the people who are most being um, uh, victims of, of this trade on the continent. There's been, in the case of the Congo, for example, an unfortunate um, case where international activists impose their own understanding of the question over the needs of local communities. And so we then formulate this example that ends up disempowering local communities instead of empowering those communities. And so I think we have to be very careful in the way we that are at the end of this, who are getting being abused by this. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, 
subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.